WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. Welcome, I'm Ben Schachman, and thank you for joining us for the first edition of our new program. On the first Friday of every month, I'll be sitting down with newsmakers and journalists to dig into the local stories that are making news. My hope is to explore the topics and ask the questions that are on your mind. Coming up later this hour, we'll be talking about the challenges of getting students back in the classroom during a pandemic. And we'll learn more about one of Wilmington's most maligned and most misunderstood neighborhoods, Creekwood. But first, the challenges of managing and spending a lot of money. Joining me now is Spence Broadhurst, who served as mayor of Wilmington from 2003 to 2006 and co-chaired the Partnership Advisory Group that managed the sale of the New Hanover Regional Medical Center. He is now the president of the New Hanover Community Endowment, a private foundation that will determine how $1.25 billion from the sale of the hospital will be invested in our community. Spence, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, Ben. Thanks for having me. So before we get into this, I do want to pull back the camera a little bit. Uh, Nearly 20 years ago, uh, as mayor, would you have seen any of this on the horizon? No, absolutely not. I tell you, I I just... every morning I wake up just amazed at the opportunity in front of us. I, you know, I'm an optimistic person. I was back then. I am now. But I don't think any of us could have seen the real opportunity and, and truly, in my opinion, a blessing that we have in front of us. Indeed. So we're talking about over a billion dollars. Uh, largely, that principle will remain intact as we spend the return on investment on it. That could be anywhere from 40 to 50 million dollars a year. Um, What's the timeline? We've heard experts say that the foundation shouldn't rush these things, but when will people start seeing, for example, grant criteria? Well, we'll start working on grant criteria later this year. You know, right now, the the step one is to receive the money, which we did on Monday. And step two was to immediately get it in some form of investment, which we did on Monday. And but, um, you know, but it's a short term liquid frankly, low yield investment that we've got it in, investments that we have it in. So we'll spend the next uh, period of time developing uh, 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 investment policy strategy to get the money invested. So, you know, you mentioned 40, 50, 60 million dollars, which, of course, is a is a is a function of the return we can get on the money. Uh, investing is a challenging thing these days with interest rates as low as they are. And you don't just turn around and drop a billion dollars into the stock market at its all time high. So we've got to engage professionals. It's got to be thoughtful. It's going to take some time to get this money properly invested. So the return and the eventual amount that we'll have available for grants in the first year and the second year is going to be much, much lower than it will be in the uh, in the stabilized years going forward. So we've got to crawl before we walk, before we run. Uh, to answer your question, we'll start working on <coughs> criteria for the grants later this year. We'll certainly uh, going to engage the public with a lot of conversation, a lot of dialogue as we develop that criteria um, going forward. But we really don't see the opportunity much to, to have investment income available for grants until, you know, probably this time next year. I think we're talking a year out. Sure. So, uh, one, good to know that you won't just be playing on, on GameStop. Um, <laughs> but also... Also good to know that, you know, there's a lot of thought going into this. One of the questions we've heard a lot uh, when it comes to grant making, and I know that's a bit down the line, is uh, is hearing from the other seven counties outside of New Hanover County from, that are served by the hospital. So Bladen, Brunswick, Columbus, Duplin, Onslow, uh, Pender, and Sampson. Um, there's been questions both about representing them on the endowment board and also making grants to those counties. Can you speak to that a little bit? 
Yeah, I, I will do the best I can. You know, the the community endowment, you know, we, we are we have guidelines. We were set up with guidelines and bylaws and we will follow them uh, directed from the asset purchase agreement between New Hanover County, New Hanover Regional Medical Center and Novant. So that established the community endowment and it established our guidelines. And those guidelines, since technically the assets of the hospital uh, were owned by the county, the county commissioners uh, in those guidelines said that the money would the the grants would be substantially made in New Hanover County for the benefit of New Hanover County. And so those those are the guidelines we will follow because those are the guidelines prescribed to us. Now, it does not preclude us from making grants uh, to agencies that that are, are serving New Hanover County, but as a byproduct also help counties outside of New Hanover County. So we anticipate over time that happening, but you know, but the directive is that the money is is to be used in New Hanover County. But we're very confident that as we really get into this, and and I and I want to say it again, it's going to take us year, two years, three years to get normalized. As we get into this, I think there will be opportunities um, as we invest in and make grants in New Hanover County to benefit the surrounding counties. So for for folks who make the argument that, you know, 50 percent or more of the income of the hospital came from patients outside of New Hanover, they're not necessarily out of the game. Well, they're not out of the game. And, you know, listen, there are two sides to that argument. And we we being the endowment weren't involved. You know, we we received the money with with a directive. And so therefore we will follow the directive. Um, But but, you know, we feel very confident that, you know, You know, health equity and disparities and those kind of things don't stop at the county line. You know, we all know that it's a it's it's certainly a regional issue, and we will certainly keep that in mind. We'll follow the directive and the guidelines we have, but we're very confident that as as we are in a position to to help fund agencies that help New Hanover County, we think the tide's going to rise for the whole region. Sure. Uh, another long term uh, issue is sort of you know, how this endowment develops into part of the public landscape of New Hanover County. And so I wanted to ask about um, the late last month, Attorney General Josh Stein sort of finished his review of the process and that included the endowment. And he uh, made a couple changes to the endowment structure, um, including, you know, additional meetings before the grant criteria are released and then additional two meetings, I believe, annually. Um, do you feel that's a, a better balance in terms of transparency and sort of engaging with the public? Well, I'll tell you this, the, our, our endowment board had already discussed every point that the attorney general suggested and we agreed to, except the two extra board members. We had not gone that path. We, we had not thought, because we, we aren't a self-appointing board. We're appointed by, by outside entities. So we didn't discuss how the board was appointed, but, but the, the community outreach, the town hall listening sessions, the uh, public uh, the the public um, uh, reporting, the making the grants public, those kind. We have already talked about that, and we would have done that regardless. So we we were very very thankful and very uh, very much appreciated the interaction, and the cooperation with the attorney general's office because we were all in lockstep with that. Sure. Um, so I do I do want to ask you about this. This was from the New Hanover County Commission uh, this week. This was. Um, uh, Chair Julia Osen-Bozeman and Rob Zappel talking about this process. Um, so play that clip real quick, and then I want to ask you about it. 
and also the good work of our Attorney General, uh, Josh Stein, who uh, made critical uh, improvements, I think, to the Community Foundation that has helped it to be a public-facing uh, organization so that the public will know what, where, and how their, their money is uh, being spent and on what projects. And I think that's, that's wonderful. And with those improvements, I think we've got the makings of a a fantastic future. So I just wanted to add those comments. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you so much. And with that, um, we had an absolutely amazing thing without the two things that the Attorney General said. I want to make that really clear to everyone that's listening. My personal opinion is it was so perfect that the only thing he could do was add a couple more, say add a couple more people, a little diverse. I think he had to throw something in um, for political purposes. And, and it was so well done. So what I want to ask you is there seems to be some a little bit of disconnect there, but do you feel like it was the the endowment was set up perfectly at first? Do you feel like the tweaks helped? Do you think there's anything in the future that you would like to see tweaked? I, I think the endowment was set up very well. I think we've had we all as a community, the county commissioners, the community, the attorney general has had time since the endowment was originally set up to think through it and to add to add uh, enhancements to it. And so I think the things the attorney general added are enhancements. I think the two additional board members directed in the areas that he suggested will be great diversity additions to our board. We're looking forward to that. And um, so, you know, it sounded to me like, you know, Commissioner Zappel and Chair Bozeman, they're saying the same thing, is that we've worked together here as a community and we have pulled together an endowment that is set to help this community for generations to come. Well, I, I accept your reading of that. Um, last thing, this had nothing to do with, uh, you know, I feel like for some, for most people, the end of Stein's review put to bed some of the conspiracy theories about the process. There were concerns from the from the beginning, though, about hospital conglomeration in general, not involving this specific deal, but just what happens when hospitals merge. You know, prices go up, quality of care goes down. We've heard that from left, right, and center groups. Um, do you see a role for the endowment in maybe buffering some of that effect if it happens? Well, first of all, jumping back to my putting my old hat of the advisory group on is is I'm not sure all that's true. You know, I, I mean, we we you know, you know, there, there are discussions from both sides about costs, both sides about uh, about how insurance interacts into it. So that's yet to be seen whether that those things that you described will happen or not. Uh, our mission, we feel like, is to go above and beyond, to go above and beyond what the hospital is able to do, in this case, Novant, above and beyond what our nonprofits currently are able to do, to go above and beyond what our government is able to do, and to reach above and see if see how we can invest money to, to get to the core causes of the social determinants of health. The hospital will treat health, and they will bring us back to health. We want to get beyond that and make the county and the region healthier up front so that so that we will have a healthier community. So that's where our investments is going will, will go is trying to deal with, you know, you, you, you take the category that we have to deal with drug and alcohol uh, uh, abuse, to deal with opioid abuse, abuse with uh, deal with homelessness, uh, early childhood education uh, issues. We want to go to the core. What causes those things and how can we invest in the community to kind of eliminate and improve those things, which will bring it back to a, a better health care system all along. I think the public looks forward to that a, a great deal. Um, so that's about it for our time. I want to thank you, Spence, so much for joining us. Uh, I definitely hope you can come back 
and we can continue this conversation when the foundation is up and running. So again, thank you so much for your time. Great. Thanks for having me, guys. That's Spence Broadhurst, the president of the New Hanover Community Endowment, the foundation that will determine how the proceeds from the hospital sale will be invested in our community. We'll be back after a short break with today's Reporter Roundtable. Joining me will be John Evans of WECT and Alex Sands from Port City Daily. We'll be talking about the New Hanover County School Board, our county commissioners, and the challenge of getting our kids back in class. You're listening to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. Please stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. Joining me now are WECT news anchor John Evans and multimedia journalist Alex Sands from Port City Daily. Welcome. I'm excited to have both of you here. Well, thanks for the invitation, Ben. I appreciate it. Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, So let's get into this. Let's talk about New Hanover County schools and the problems and politics of getting our kids back in school. This is obviously a contentious, difficult issue. There's a parents group with one view, a teachers group with a different safety concern, our school board, our local superintendent, our county commissioners, they've all had their own points of view. And it's been a busy week. Over the last, you know, seven to 10 days, we've heard support for reopening safely from President Joe Biden, Governor Roy Cooper, and in a new report out from Duke University. So a lot to unpack, a lot to get through. John Evans, uh, let me start with you. Where do things stand as of today? Well, as of today, uh, New Hanover County schools, uh, K through five and six through 12 are all on that. uh, We call it kind of a hybrid uh, of a schedule AABB. That means that students go to school twice a week in class. They learn remotely twice a week from home. And then one day during the week, usually Wednesday, is a day when the schools are deep cleaned. Uh, there was a schedule to have the elementary schools come back after the Christmas break and have them go to in-person learning five days a week. That did not happen. And uh, as of now, as you said earlier, there are groups calling for that to happen. But uh, as of the uh, school board meeting earlier this week, I think the next time the school board might meet to actually talk about possibly transitioning to plan A, might be Tuesday of next week. Is that what we heard as far as a potential special meeting? I believe so that uh, that looks like the next possible time that they might uh, be getting together to at least address this issue. Uh, yeah, I believe next Tuesday is, is what we're looking at. Um, Alex Sands from Port City Daily. Uh, two of the groups that have been very vocal about this are the New Hanover County Association of Parents and the New Hanover County Association of Educators. We've seen them both uh, protesting or demonstrating outside of school board meetings. Can you help us get into a little bit of where they're both coming from? Yeah, so basically the families that are in support of Plan A are saying we want a choice. So we either, we want to go to school five days a week and if you don't like it, then just do the virtual learning. But then you have this other group of families that are saying we feel really comfortable in Plan B and we feel safe and we don't want to send our kids to school with a class of 25 students. Right now the classes are pretty small. So that's basically what it comes down to. And you really can't please everybody, but everybody does want kids back in school. So at least we can all agree on that. Yeah, there's been a number of studies on not looking directly at viral safety, but talking about the long-term impacts of distance learning on on students, on their mental health, on their grades. Uh, This is especially true for uh, lower income families, minority families who don't have access to childcare or you know high quality internet. Um, 
It, do you feel, uh, John Evans, do you feel like everyone's on the same page as far as that part of the reopening issue? I think so. Uh, from, from what I have uh, digested in what our reporters bring back from meetings and what I've been able to gather, it, it appears that everyone realizes how essential it is uh, to get especially the early grades in school uh, and learning in the classroom, you know, not only for the, the digestion of the information in the classes, but for the social impact and learning and being around other students. I don't think that's a question at this point in time, Ben. I think, as uh, Alex said earlier, I think the question is the safety and especially the teachers where they're concerned about being in the schools five days a week and the families who are just unsure right now whether they want their children in school five days a week. But I believe everybody realizes uh, they wish that the students, especially early grades, could be back in there because of how essential it is. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I want to pick up on something, Alex, that you said about not being able to please everyone. And certainly it seems like the school board has facilitated a little bit back and forth on this. I want to take us back to December, uh, the last board of commissioners member meeting in 2020 uh, and play. This is a quick clip. clip. This is a uh, board chair, Julia Osen Bozeman, um, addressing basically the school board directly telling her telling them what she wanted to see happen we have to do all we can to get our kids back into school full time starting first with our pre-k through fifth graders which i want our school board to make happen in january for the start of the new semester students need to be in school and the data supports that national reports have shown that we are doing more damage than good by keeping kids out of school and the cdc has reported that COVID 19 is not spreading at high levels inside schools and that is what we are seeing locally as well so this isn't traditional republican versus democrat politics but it's certainly a kind of politics um alex tell us a little bit about the reactions that you saw after uh, chairman olson bozeman waded into this debate so after i mean right when the issue came up on the commissioner's agenda i i believe it's something about discussing reopening schools and i saw this i think on another uh reporting and I was confused. I was like, did this reporter make a mistake? Because isn't that the Board of Education? But it turns out it wasn't the commissioners. And then we got the teachers bonuses, which made people kind of speculate. Um, and they were wondering if this was some kind of like under the table agreement where we were going to open schools and then in return, people were going to get uh, bonuses. Um, so yeah. 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 No, I, I heard some of the same things. And John, I'm sure you did, too. Um, and of course, the expectation was then that the school board would decide to reopen, uh, which led to this sort of interesting exchange. And this is in January. This is uh, the January 13th Board of Education meeting. And this is uh, new board member Stephanie Craybill uh, breaking the news to Superintendent uh, Dr. Charles Faust that they would not be reopening. Dr. Faust, before we start voting, I mean, I know you don't want it. And I know that you're not crazy about this, but if we're going to go forward with it, then is there anything else you'd like to add? No surprise. Okay. That's all I ask, that the board not surprise me. Yeah, uh, no surprises, he asked them for. Um, John, you've been covering local boards a long time, and you know uh, more than most people about the relationships between county managers and superintendents and their boards. Um, is it common to see someone caught off guard like that? You know, it, it's. It, I would say in this instance, Ben, maybe 
not and the, and and let me preface this by saying you have a fairly new superintendent and at that meeting that you're talking about the new school board members uh which there were four at that time uh had had only been in office maybe for five or six weeks so while it may be unusual in the wide scope of things when you're dealing with brand new faces trying to get used to each other. I'm at least in this instance going to give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt there. Uh, and, and so when I preface that by saying there's a lot of new people still trying to get used to each other on that board and then that administration. So in that instance, I'm going to give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. Fair enough. Um, as far as the county commissioners weighing in uh, unanimously on asking the Board of Education to open up, uh, admittedly that's an unusual move, but not the first time we've seen the commissioners weigh in. Um, last year we saw the commission weigh in and effectively bankroll the separation agreement of former superintendent Dr. Tim Markley uh, to the tune of something around a quarter million dollars. It's, is there a sense uh, from your reporters, from what you're hearing from the public, that this Board of Education needs a little bit of guidance from outside, whether that's the county commissioners or somewhere else? John, what about you? I, I don't know. We, a, a reporter kind of asked that a little bit at the, at the meeting this week, Ben, and, and it was kind of couched in asking one of the members of the school board if they feel pressure from the county commissioners to reopen here. Uh, Nelson Bollier told us that he appreciated the commissioner's guidance uh, at this point in time. But you also have to bring up the fact that the two boards were supposed to meet face to face earlier this month. And then when Chairman Julia Olson Bozeman came out and basically criticized the school board and the administration for backing off the plan to go full time in person, uh, you know, there, there's no... Uh, you know, there's no other way you can almost look at it as if the school board is almost kind of saying, you need to stay away. This is our decision. Now, we did see this week where Chairman Olson Bozeman did write a, a letter to the chairman of the uh, school board, uh, Stephanie Adams, where she's talking about she's going to advocate to the state that they uh, make teachers and staff a higher priority when it comes to getting the vaccines. And that's what I think a lot of the, the, the people on the education side, uh, they just want to be open safely. So you see Chairman Bozeman in this instance, almost kind of taking a step and saying, OK, I'm going to get in there with you. I'm going to send this letter to legislators. I'm going to send this letter to the state to see and show them I'm also in support of getting teachers and administrators in the schools up a little higher because it can have a benefit of opening the schools at a faster rate. Sure. You're listening to The Newsroom with WH, from WHQR Public Media. I'm Ben Shockman, talking to WECT's John Evans and Port City Daily's Alex Sands. So I want to take a little bit of a turn here now and talk about uh, some of the other issues that have been going on in the background of the reopening debate. Uh, and one of them, uh, Alex Sands, I know you've been following, is this Title IX survey. And to give people who are not familiar with this a little bit of a background, this is an idea that's sort of been um, on the table since about 2018 when the, there was the election for uh, the Board of um, Education. And the idea is basically to survey students anonymously to get a sense of 
you know, how many incidents of sexual harassment, sexual abuse, or other, you know, misconduct has happened in the school. But it hasn't rolled out that smoothly. Alex, what can you tell us about that? So, yeah, I guess um, this, Judy Justice brought this survey back to the table. She was pretty hopeful that some of the new board members would help her push it through. And it turned out that I guess over time it had evolved into one survey to another. And at one point it had uh, questions about sexual assault. And then by the time a survey was presented to the school board, it didn't. So now they're revisiting this and they're gonna meet on Friday. And at that point, I think they're gonna rediscuss whether they want to ask that question about sexual assault. And they're kind of saying that you can go on Ethics 360 and you can report it and that might be a more appropriate way to deal with it. And they're concerned about if they'll be able to uh, address reports of sexual assault that come up on the survey. So they're concerned because they have to, they feel like they have to report those things. Um, and then, but the other side of the story is that people want to know how many incidents of sexual assault are happening. Right, for sure. Um, I think, you know, the way, some of the ways we've heard it described is that uh, the other surveys they've looked at um, take place in other states. Every state has their own reporting requirements. Um, so we're still sort of waiting to see how they hash out their legal responsibility to report anything they learn about versus the overall desire to get a sense of what's going on. And I think that topic leads me to the last thing I want to talk about with you guys. We still have five, six minutes here. And that is something that came up at this week's Board of Education meeting. It was brought up by a former Laney High School student named Chris Sutton. I want to play a, a clip from him. Uh, he was obviously very passionate. This is the last minute of his speech. Uh, and he touched on a number of issues that haven't been in the headlines lately, but are still on people's minds. Let's go ahead and talk about Peter Frank's files that were never spoke, that were never released. Lisa Stepp, she was the chair. She stated that y'all voted on it and that the files were partially supposed to be released. Eight months later, Port City Daily did a report. They stated, no, we're not gonna release nothing, no, that's it. After a board vote, what happened with that, okay? $5,000 worth of documents compiled for Tim Markley. Nelson, Judy, both said they never got to see those documents. We paid five grand for documents that not one person on the board saw. Who has them? Who got to see them? Why did we never get to see them? Transparency, what every single one of y'all wrote off, which I don't have time to go through it, but I got a quote from Mr. Wildenborg, Ms. Walker, Mr. Craybill, Mr. McManus, every single one of y'all talked about trust, restoring trust, getting back to this. There are certain things that just need to be released. Same thing with Wayne Bullard. He got caught sitting in that seat, laughing at us, sitting there filming us. It's supposed to be released. We had the lawyer send a letter to him multiple times, but then when the school board gets asked about it months later, no comment. Where is it? I want to see if he was talking to Rick Holiday while he was sitting there. Mr. Sutton, your time is up. Thank yes, you. Y'all understand. Thank you very Please much. Please do the right thing. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, sir. Thank you. And that was Mr. Sutton being beeped out after the uh, they've changed the call of the audience guidelines where they now only have two minutes. So people had to speak faster and say more in a short period of time. And Sutton covered a lot of things. There's lots to unpack there. He started by talking about the renaming of Holiday Stadium at Laney High School, his alma mater, which has been folded into the Board of Education's larger process of looking at new names and titles for facilities and schools and things like that. He then moved on to Peter Michael Frank, the teacher who was arrested last year. Um, John Evans, you guys have had some coverage of the latest on that. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Well, Peter Frank is still in jail. Uh, he is awaiting trial. He's in custody. Uh, one of several uh, members of the uh, school system 
uh, charged with um, sexual assault. Uh, Michael Kelly, of course, uh, was uh, one of the first that came out. Uh, he is in prison after pleading guilty. And the Department of Justice uh, gave us an update um, last week, uh, week before last, excuse me, saying that the uh, investigation is still going on as to how the New Hanover County Schools uh, handled allegations of sexual assault inside the school system. Uh, this is an issue, uh, Ben, that you know you have followed uh, for several years. It is one that uh, brings up a lot of emotions, and you know the DOJ was responding to uh, uh, posts out there uh, from the community about where does this investigation stands. It's still going on because the public hadn't received any updates. And so I think when all this played, it kind of has gotten uh, put aside while the results, while everyone waits for the results of that DOJ investigation. Yeah, we saw uh, strange bedfellows, NAACP president from Penner County, uh, Dante Murphy, and right. uh, Woody White uh, sort of joining on this, on the, in a chorus to ask the state uh, Department of Justice just, just where things were with that. Um, and that was the that was what prompted the DOJ to come out and and actually make that statement that the investigation's going on. Please know that it is going on, and as soon as it wraps up, we will have something for you. Likely never would have gotten that had it not been prompted by people in the community, as you said, leaders in those two counties. And I think that gets to sort of the core of what some people are frustrated with with the New Hanover County school system, and that is you know communication and transparency. Uh, I don't know if things will get better. We, we learned that their chief communication officer, Ann Gibson, will be leaving. Um, nothing scandalous. She's uh, told us that she was just, you know, in this time of COVID, wanted to spend more time with her family. But that, that probably won't improve uh, the lines of communication. We've certainly seen uh, Dr. Charles Faust has been pretty, has had a pretty strong hand in directing the media in terms of how they can talk to board members. Um, so to bring us all the way back around to the reopening debate, I it seems to me, and Alex, you know, let me know what you think, but some of the things I've heard is not so much that they don't ever want to reopen, especially these groups like the, um, the Association of Educators. It's more that they haven't heard anything concrete about the nitty gritty, how it will actually work. I mean, what, what have you heard from some of these folks? I mean, just from watching the board meetings, they kind of stand up there for a long time going through the details, the administration, I mean, and it just seems like the school board's not getting much reassurance about things like kids being distanced on buses and in classrooms. Um, they are trying really hard, but I think that's just like what's holding them back from not reopening. Um, yeah, I mean, that seems to be the sense I've heard is that um, every, every meeting, every call to the audience, there's additional situations that people can think of. And, uh, you know, whether that's what kids will do on the playground, what kids will do on buses, whether or not I know um, board member Pete Wildebor has suggested um, UV cleansing of the rooms and there doesn't seem to be a set policy. John Evans, do you get a sense that some of this has been because both the federal government and the state government have left local school boards to kind of figure things out for themselves? I think that's a that's a great point. I think each school system has literally been charged uh, by the state to developing their own plan. There is no one size fits all from Raleigh, no one size fits all from Washington, D.C. And so, you know, you'll see Pender County have success 
with having students back in class. And then you'll see, you know, New Hanover and maybe some of the other ones, uh, counties uh, have, uh, a, you know, a less uh, successful rollout of theirs. And there is no one size fits all. It's been a hundred years since we went through this. And so I, I think nobody is comfortable. Again, I think Alex said it earlier, you can't please everybody. And so I think they're all dealing with that. And all I know is that I wouldn't want to be a member of the school board and, and having to make some of those decisions right now. I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, of course, that music means we're running out of time, so we're gonna have to stop the segment. Thank you so much, John Evans, news anchor at WECT, Alex Sands, journalist for Port City Daily. I really, really appreciate both of you taking your time to join us. All right, after a short break, we'll be back with Kevin Maurer, an award-winning journalist and a best-selling author, who's now Director of Community Engagement for the Cape Fear Collective. Kevin has been working on a profile of Wilmington's Creekwood neighborhood based on conversations with current and former residents. I'm Ben Schachman, and you're listening to The Newsroom on WHQR. Please stay with us. Welcome back. You're listening to The Newsroom on WHQR. I'm Ben Schachman. The Cape Fear Collective is a local nonprofit organization working towards what they describe as equitable systemic change in southeastern North Carolina. Kevin Maurer is a journalist and author and now the organization's director of community engagement. Kevin, welcome to The Newsroom. Very happy to have you here. Thanks, Ben. I'm looking forward to being here. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the Cape Fear Collective for people who don't know, and then we can get into the Creekwood project that you've been working on. Sure. The Cape Fear Collective started out as a collective impact uh, organization looking to unite our local nonprofits around one sort of one issue, one one mindset around a town square is how we put it. Um, but we've we're pivoting a little bit now. We're focusing on two things. We're focusing on uh, data and and a, a platform we're building around NC twenty thirty uh, as a way to for our local nonprofits to measure the health of our community. And then we're doing a, a social impact ventures where we're, we're lowering the barrier for folks to get money for housing, transportation, and jobs. Uh, and so I sort of straddle the line between both of those. Uh, and that's where this project comes in, where we we consider story part of our data and part of making sure that we, we keep our our fingerprint on, or our thumb on the, uh, on what's going on in the, in the community and, um, and for getting that qualitative data that will then inform uh, our programming. Sure. And uh, the Creekwood project that uh, you've been sharing with us, and we're happy to sort of be your media partners on that, uh, is a series of you know pretty candid interviews with folks who live in Creekwood um, about their lives, about the history of Creekwood, about where it's at now. And um, these are these are long form interviews that we've sort of cut down a little bit, but they, I mean, from your point of view, they paint a picture of Creekwood. Is this, you know, is that sort of the, the gist is for people who don't know about Creekwood, this is sort of an introduction? Yeah, I mean, you know, you and I talked a lot about our blind spots um, and, and the way that we see our community. And, and one, of the, one of my blind spots has always been Creekwood and, and our Wilmington Housing uh, Authority communities. I mean, I feel like uh, unless you invest the time to go in there and, and, and talk to folks who live there, you, you just see them as a uh, as sort of what you see in the news. And so a lot of what uh, I initially believed about Creekwood and then a lot of what I initially um, was able to, to get um, in my reporting was, was, was from sort of government and police. Uh, so I made just a concerted effort to go into Creekwood, talk to people, 
and try to learn, you know, what is what is it like? And what you find is it's, it's a community uh, unlike any other, but it's also, it's kind of a special place where, where people there really band together. Um, yeah, so one of the first people you talked to in Creekwood was Glendora Mullins, right? That's right. Give us a little background on her, and then I want to play a little clip from your conversation with her. Uh, Glendora is sort of uh, the leader of Creekwood. She's the one that uh, I think she's done a lot of work trying to improve that community. And, and I think if you're going to get anything done in Creekwood or you want to know anything about Creekwood, uh, you start with Glendora Mullins. Sure. So let's hear a little bit from Glendora Mullins. This is her talking about some of the things she'd like to change about Creekwood. I want people to feel safe coming in, going to the center, just driving through. You don't have to worry about ducking and dodging bullets or wondering if they going to make it out of here. I want to see where they can just come in and have the uh, the restaurants, have delivery, pizza, the cabs coming back in here. So... I don't want to make light of this because this is actually a serious topic, but this was something that came up over and over again in your interviews, and that's pizza delivery. Um, tell me, tell me how pizza delivery led you sort of into these broader conversations. It, it was really the, the the spark for the whole idea. Um, she had mentioned a couple of times uh, in some of the other work I was doing in, in Creekwood about how um, she and her neighbors had to walk up to uh, the Prince Mart on Princess Place to get uh, delivery that they the delivery drivers wouldn't go into Creekwood proper. Uh, and it sort of it sort of shocked me because you know I don't have that problem in my neighborhood, um, and it sort of led to this idea of trying to understand better you know what people's daily lives are like in Creekwood. Yeah, and I think that's that's sort of the yin and yang of the story is that on the one hand it's a it's insight into you know people's everyday lives which aren't the crime that gets splashed over the headlines, but on the other hand there is crime in Creekwood, and uh, in a second I want to play a clip from um, Wilmington Police Chief Donnie Williams. But before we do that, um, what was it like? You know, he's he's been pretty reticent to talk to the press. So how, do, how did you sort of get through that and, and get him to sit down and talk about this? I mean, I, I told him I was pretty transparent that I wanted to talk about Creekwood. I wanted to talk about um, his experience growing up there and how it may have influenced him, uh, one, in being a police officer, and two, and how he views the role of, of police officers. So... Uh, he kind of jumped at the chance, uh, and I thought we had a we had a really good conversation about that. Uh, but getting the, his origin story, and and at the end of it, he sort of says that you know Creekwood sort of made him the the police chief and the man that he is today, and and I thought that was pretty powerful. Yeah. So this is Chief Williams talking about a very specific problem in Creekwood. I mean, we can get into that in a second, but here's here's Chief Williams. One of the issues that makes Creekwood very challenging is the Housing Authority has a trespassing list. And this is very unique to Creekwood. Creekwood has public right-of-way that goes right through the center of it. And that is a challenge with Creekwood because people that are on the trespassing list can stand on the sidewalk, which defeats the purpose. They're still in Creekwood. They're just standing on the sidewalk. And this is another idea that Williams is bringing up that that came up in a bunch of your interviews. And that's the idea that a lot of the gang-related violence or the drug-related violence, whatever we want to call it, is coming from outside of Creekwood. Um, tell us a little bit about what you heard from people about that. I mean, I, I don't think people shy away from that there are some some crime problems with Creekwood, but but the prevailing idea is that a lot of the crime comes to them in the form of, of folks coming to, uh, either sometimes they buy drugs or sometimes they're there to, um, you know, they're, they're there to, because of ongoing beefs between the east side and the and the south side 
And the fact that they can get into Creekwood and not violate the trespassing laws because it's a public street that runs through the middle of it um, is how they do it. And I think that ongoing friction of this idea of how much of the problems they have in, in Creekwood are homegrown and how much of it is is coming from the outside. I, I'm not sure we can quantify this just yet, or I, I wasn't able to quantify it, um, but most of the folks who live in Creekwood believe that the problems that Creekwood experiences on a daily basis are not homegrown problems, but they're because of, of problems that are coming from the South side, particularly. So there seems to be, you know, some difference in opinion about whether or not this idea of happier days in Creekwood is just nostalgia or whether or not things have actually sort of gone downhill a little bit. Um, what was your takeaway from those conversations? I think it, it depends on who you talk to. I, I think um, there has been an uptick in violence, I think, uh, th but there is a real sense of community. And I think you see it particularly around the community center and the programming and the, the outreach that they do there. And that, that really is sort of the heart and soul of, of Creekwood. And I, and I think for the most part, um, it is a tight community and, and they have better days than, than bad days. Sure. You're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. I'm Ben Schockman, joined by Kevin Maurer from the Cape Fear Collective. Kevin, I want to come back to something you talked about, and that's our sort of collective blind spots. And one of the questions that you asked in pretty much every one of these interviews was about what are people missing about Creekwood? Like, what, what don't they know? And I, I want to roll a little bit of audio. This is sort of a montage of responses that you got. Um, so these, these are voices from Creekwood answering that question. People ignore Creekwood or the news puts so much stigma of the negative in Creekwood. They're more of looking at the bad and what's been already happened out here. People who live in Creekwood are no different from anybody else, which is that they want to be able to put food on the table. They want to roof over their heads. They want an opportunity at a, at a good life. They want the very best for their children. Everybody wants that, no matter where you live. It's some loving people out here. Love. Like, like I said, like we stand on loyalty. Like, because it used to be where you could come up here, go in the park, sit out there, do movie nights in the park, or just sit out there and play music. We used to have all that out here, and it's gonna be again. You got to communicate from the youth to the old, the old to the youth. Communicate. But little people, rarely do people know that we have, we're we hitting gyms. There's a lot going on in our community to be proud of. So that's why I do the, the um, Creekwood South Facebook page so they can see that it's more than just what the news say. It's a lot of pa positive aspects out here. But they got to come out here. If you ain't never lived in it, you don't understand it. If you, only, if you ain't never lived in it, you're not going to understand it. They just only see things from their point of view. But anyway, she asked me, if you don't like it out here, what are you doing to make a change? And that hit home. Like, it really registered. So I started to do different little things to support my community. And the other thing I think people are missing about Creekwood is the larger narrative of why systemic uh, inequality continues to impact so many Americans, uh, including people uh, in Creekwood, but really all over all over the country. Um, and I think Wilmington's unique history has a lot to say for why African-Americans uh, in, in Wilmington um, continue to be at a disadvantage, frankly. 
So there's a lot to unpack there. And first thing I want to get, because we've still got a couple of minutes, um, let's talk about media coverage of Creekwood. If you run a Google search on Creekwood in Wilmington, you and I both know what comes up. It's it's shootings and the occasional drug bust. You you know I remember uh, a couple of years ago, the uh, Star News ran an editorial supporting then Police Chief Ralph Evangelos, uh, calling for the basically bulldozing of Creekwood and some of the other housing projects. They compared it to the uh, killing fields in Cambodia, which is not a good prognosis for housing for housing complex. Um, you know, in your experience, what could the media do better? What that they're not doing now when it comes to covering Creekwood or, or even the way that they treat Creekwood? And it, I think it's something that, um, you know, we've talked a lot about. It's, it's just be reporters again. You know, stop just taking the press release from the police or from the city and, uh, and repurposing it as a story. But get into the community, meet some people, and find out what, you know, what they think. I mean, the whole genesis of this project came back to, you know, just go in there and ask the question and then close your mouth and, and, and you know, report the answer. And I, and I think, you know, that's what I'm most proud of, of this collaboration that we're doing is, is we're putting our money where our mouth is. And we went into a community that I think is stigmatized. Uh, and, um, you know, we help let them tell their own story. Yeah, I think I think that's important for people to hear. The, the other part of this is, you know, we do get the sense from a number of people who you spoke with that there are a lot of good things going on in Creekwood. Um, it's hard to hear about them. It's hard to hear about what goes on at the center. It's hard to hear about some of the... Um, the programs that are coming out of Creekwood, where can people go and sort of find that? I and mean, what's, how did you get into this? And maybe that'll help other people. Well, uh, part of it had to do with my work with the Cape Fear Collective. Um, they do have their a Facebook page that, that uh, Quinesha Mullins uh, maintains. She also has a, a nonprofit called Port City Period that does a lot of work and programming around Creekwood. Um, but part of it is just go out there uh, and, and talk to folks, go out there and play basketball, go out there and, and treat it like any other part of our, our, our community. And the last thing I want to get into, I think this has a lot to do with uh, Cape Fear Collective Mission, and that is something that you heard at the end of that sort of audio montage. And that's about how the problems at Creekwood um, aren't isolated to Creekwood. I mean, there are hundreds of Creekwoods all around the United States. Um, I, have, as a reporter for the last five years, have been tracking the almost no efforts to improve those conditions. Um, those conversations seem to be moving very slowly. You know, do you do you hope people will get the connection that uh, Reggie Suford is making there at the end uh, between the larger narrative of systemic racism and what the issues of Creekwood are? Yeah, I mean, we have a poverty problem and we have a concentrated poverty problem. I mean, if you just look at the physical aspects of Creekwood, you know, they are literally across a railroad track, across a field. Um, I think the more we, we try to break down those barriers to capital, barriers to transportation, barriers, you know, that kind of access, you know, we're going to break up these concentrated uh, poverty zones. And then, then you can start building a systemic uh, fix to some of these problems because there isn't, you can't solve one without solving the other. Yeah, I think that's that's a big problem to unpack, and I, I think you and I have some work lined up in the future that will get to some of that. My last question um, on a personal level, you know, you asked a lot of folks in Creekwood what they thought people were missing. If there's one takeaway, what were you missing about Creekwood before you started this project? I think I overlooked the resiliency that it takes to live out there and to work, uh, to you know, to work three jobs to, to maintain your livelihood. Uh, and I think I missed the entrepreneurship. Um, 
Creekwood is full of creative driven people who just need a chance. And I think the, I met a lot of them uh, as I did this project. Yeah. Uh, and I heard in some of those interviews, there's, there's some really interesting stories and people who have really, um, you know, made some incredible progress in their, in their personal and economic lives, despite some, some pretty tough conditions. Um, so before, before we leave, I want to let people know that they will be seeing and hearing more from this project. Um, you've got some writing and reporting that'll be included in it. We'll have photos. We'll have a little history on Creekwood. We'll have these interviews and they should, uh, they should look for that later, uh, later this month. But also that um, this is hopefully the first of several collaborations between WHQR and uh, and Cape Fear Collective, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think this is gonna, a great partnership, and I'm hoping we can continue to do this not only in our urban communities but in our rural communities as well. Yeah, I think there's certainly a lot to do there. So stay tuned. Well, Kevin, um, that's actually that's about all the time we've got, uh, at least for today. Many more conversations to have down the road. But thank you so much for being here today. Uh, if our listeners want more information about the Cape Fear Collective, they can go to capefearcollective.org. We'll have links to that and everything else on the page. And, of course, uh, stay tuned for our joint project, The Oral Biography of Creekwood, which you can find at WHQR later this month. Kevin Maurer, Director of Community Engagement for Cape Fear Collective, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that's it for our first edition of The Newsroom. Thanks to our guests, Spence Broadhurst, John Evans, Alex Sands, and Kevin Maurer. And to Ken Campbell and Andrew Craig for engineering and editing the program, and Doc Jarden for his help producing. If you missed part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org, and it will air again this Sunday at 1 p.m., followed by Coastline. Got comments about our first edition or questions for an upcoming show? Email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. <laughs>